welcome to the second episode of the Devereux Chambers Employment Law Podcast. My name's Katia Hosking, and today I have the pleasure of talking with Andrew Burns QC about the COVID-19 crisis and collective redundancy consultations. Andrew's a silk who specialises in large collective claims and in industrial relations more generally, and he's been involved in some of the most significant strike and industrial action litigation in recent years. It's a pleasure to welcome him. Well, it's a pleasure to be here, Katia, although we actually got rooms next door to each other. We do see each other in normal times, so on a fairly regular, regular basis, don't we? Yes, it's a shame we have to be so much further apart at the moment. Andrew, let's get some of the basics out of the way first. Suppose I'm an employer whose business has been hit hard by the current lockdown, and I'm starting to realise that I'm just going to have to let some of my employees go. At what point am I required to do a collective consultation about those potential redundancies? Well, the situation we're in at the moment is somewhat different from quite a lot of situations that employers would face when they are uh, hit hard by a situation because the whole furlough scheme means that rather than employers having to turn to redundancies and mass redundancies as a necessary first step, uh, it has been for most employers a step that could be put off and put off for some considerable period if an employer can continue to hold its head above water by furloughing employees and getting 80% back from the government scheme and perhaps topping up and perhaps not, then collective redundancies can be, for the time being, off the agenda. I think the, the concern that employment lawyers have is we've seen that the lockdown is continuing. We've seen that social distancing measures are likely to continue. But one thing that is quite clear is that the economy has taken such a hit, has taken such a blow, that people are talking now openly about there being a depression, which follows the lifting of the lockdown. And during that depression, after the furlough scheme is no more, employers are going to have to make really difficult decisions. When the business starts again after lockdown and employees come back post furlough, do they need the same number of employees? Now, as soon as an employer starts the proposal to dismiss a group of employees, that includes uh, if there's going to be any transfers of business, it seems a bit unlikely at this point, but if there's any transfers of business, a transferee employer who's proposing to dismiss. But where an employer is proposing to dismiss a group of employees, uh, then collective consultation duties start to kick in. Employees means employees in the traditional sense doesn't mean workers despite interestingly the wider application of the directive the the directive actually talks about in workers in the, the wider sense and there's a disconnect there but uh, for the time being looking at the 1992 act and the uk obligations what a uk employer has to do is consider consult starting consultation if it is thinking about proposing to dismiss a group of employees on grounds of redundancy where the proposal relates to 20 or more within a 90-day period at a, a single establishment. In those circumstances, the employer must consult and must consult in good time. And that, in some ways, is one of the biggest areas of dispute between employers and unions, because unions will say always that the consultation did not begin in good time, it could have begun earlier. The employers will necessarily have to work up a proposal. It will start from a preliminary view, go through various ideas until it becomes a, a certain proposal. 
once you have a proposal at that time, the duty to consult arises, but employers will then come to a union with a fully formed proposal and unions will often, or employers representatives will often criticize the employer for saying, well, you've got this to this stage. Why didn't you consult us before? You didn't consult us in good time. There's a backstop, of course. Uh, the backstop is that consultation must start no later, uh, in the case of large scale redundancies, 100 or more, no later than 45 days before the first of the dismissals uh, is proposed to take effect. And in any other, any other case, at least 30 days. And that's, that's the Trade Union Labour Relations Consolidation Act 1992 uh, in section 188, uh, 1A. Those are the, the backstop. And so there's occasions where in good time, and many occasions where in good time will mean more than the minimum 30 or 45 days. But I, I have come across a number of employers who have seen the backstop, the, the minimum 30 or 45 days, and they see that as a target to be aimed at rather than a minimum threshold to be achieved. But the important thing is employers have to, in these circumstances, make reductions without running the risk of being hammered by protective awards. And they've got to make sure they try and treat their employees as, as fairly as possible. And so good, effective, collective consultation in good time meets both of those objectives. It avoids a very difficult and harsh punitive protective award, and it gives the employer, employees and the representatives uh, early warning of what is to come. And just to be clear, in, in this circumstance, what exactly counts as a redundancy? So Katya, in the terms of the directive, there's a slightly interesting legal foible here, which is the translations of the, the directive. The collective redundancies directive, as, as we know, it is actually known as the collective dismissals directive in some translations. It's only where we're proposing to dismiss on grounds of redundancy. So it doesn't mean natural wastage, it doesn't mean temporary layoff, doesn't include relocation or redeployment of employees and other workplaces. It means a dismissals which are for one or more reasons uh, that are not related to individual workers. So the dismissal is for a reason that isn't related to the individual worker concerned. Therefore, because it's not related to the individual, it's related to the collective, that more or less is on fours with the UK concept of redundancy. It's where it's not because of one individual employee that they are being dismissed, it's because of the situation which involves many. And that situation is usually a re reorganisation uh, or a strict redundancy situation. So it includes redundancy in the wider sense, where there is a business change, uh, where dismissals are needed in order to affect a, uh, a reorganisation, or where the employer has a reduced need for employees of a particular kind. It includes, therefore, of course, voluntary redundancies. It doesn't include somebody who genuinely resigns, and it doesn't include a consensual termination where employee and employer decide by a agreement between the two of them uh, that the contract should be terminated, nor does it apply to expires of, of fixed term contracts. It imply, applies to uh, redundancies in that sort of wider sense. So to trigger the requirement for a collective consultation, an employer has to be proposing 20 or more redundancies at a single establishment. But what does single establishment mean when we're talking about redundancies in this way? Well, there's a, a hot topic that Woolworths are really interested in because 
they were making redundancies across their network of stores. And the redundancies were often below 20 if one took a single Woolworths store, but were plainly much above 20 if one looked at the chain of Woolworths stores as a whole. Is the establishment the local workplace or is it a, a collection of workplaces or a business unit? Now, an establishment is the local employment unit. It's not the whole enterprise, the whole business, the whole undertaking. And the Woolworths case, uh, Ostor and WW realization number one, went to the uh, European courts. Uh, the decision was that there's a uniform meaning within EU law. The question uh, was whether the individual work Woolworth shop was a separate establishment or not. And the Court of Justice said that, well, the worker is not assigned to a group of stores. It's not assigned to Woolworths naturally, nationally. The worker is assigned to a Woolworth store, a Woolworth shop. That is the establishment. That is the factory. That is the workplace. That is the office at which uh, that worker is assigned, at which that worker works. So we're looking for a, a business unit in the context of an undertaking. It's got to be a distinct entity of some sort. It's got to have enough permanence and stability to have a long-term existence. It has to have workers assigned to it uh, to perform one or more given tasks. Undertaking the, uh, the, the establishment of the undertaking needs to have its own workforce. It has to have its own technical means to produce goods or services. It needs a, a certain organizational structure. Now, we've seen the dispute about casting the net wide or casting the net narrowly in relation to establishments across a number of uh, different fields of employment. This is the one in which it's in some ways most acute because it's a quite a hard, especially in the UK law, where we have uh, obligation to consult not when there's a percentage of the workforce affected, but when there's a uh, strict certain number of the workforce affected by the redundancies. And uh, in the EAT, I think it was Jeremy Mullen, he went for a, a wider definition of establishment, saying that he was draw drawing on the directive in order to make the directive work. I think he thought that the directive really wasn't doing what it was proposed to do. If uh, Woolworths could define each store as an undertaking and say that uh, each of their redundancy exercises were was affecting less than 20 employees. So the union lost that particular case and the store was held to be the establishment. I think that really sets the sets down the marker for how we will look at establishments. In some cases, it'll be obvious what the establishment is because there will be a defined factory and there'll be a number of factories perhaps within the employer, but the one factory will be the one establishment or be one office. Um, slightly more difficult in, in, in new types of uh, employment structures, new types of working practices. Yes, and, and so what if I'm an employer, for instance, who has a lot of mobile staff, you know, maybe staff who are based at home? I mean, of course, lots of people at the moment are working from home. Is, is that going to make any difference to whether my proposed redundancies count as being at a single establishment? Oh, well, no, that's, you've asked the tricky question. Of course, where you normally work in an office or you normally work in a factory or normally work in a particular workplace, then, of course, it's not going to be so difficult. In fact, we're working at home at the moment because of lockdown. It doesn't change the fact we are employed still at the the factory or at the office. But, of course, yes, you're right, of course, there's lots of 
peripatetic workers, remote workers or normal home workers who aren't always in the place, uh, in one place uh, that the employer controls, at which point you look at where they're managed from. You look at the, the base from which, uh, which their site to go. So where they would go if they had to have a meeting with their manager or with a boss, where they have to go to pick up tools or equipment, where they have to go to get resources. So you would look for their home base, so to speak. Uh, you wouldn't say they were assigned to their actual house or to their van, that would be unrealistic. Uh, you would look at the establishment as being where they effectively feel that their home working location uh, is, where they report to. Now, we're, we're about a month into the lockdown at the time of recording, and it, it's, as you said, it's looking likely there'll be restrictions on movement for, for a long time to come. So more and more employees are wondering whether they'll still have a job to go back to, and employers are increasingly concerned about the ability of their businesses to function under a long-term lockdown. But at what stage is the consultation requirement triggered? So how sure does the employer have to be about the need for multiple redundancies before they've got to um, start that consultation process? Yes, well, we touched upon this earlier in, in outline, didn't we? And when we were looking at the, the definition uh, in section 188 of, of when the duty arises, and I talked about the fact that there needed to be a proposal and that at the moment in the, the lockdown, the employers may not have any firm proposals because we're not really sure what the future holds. But once we come out and once we get into what could well be a steep recession or even a depression, at that stage, uh, employers will start making plans for how to deal with the future and how to keep business going in the future. And it's when the employer has that proposal that the duty activates. Now, there was a lot of debate a few years back. It was quite fun, the fact that the Collective Redundancies Directive used the language of when the employer was contemplating dismissals. And the UK legislation used the language of when an employer had proposed dismissals. And we had lots of debate about whether if you contemplate a dismissal, do you contemplate a dismissal before you actually put a proposal together? And there was lots of uh, dictionary debates which went on and the Employment uh, Appeal Tribunal were really exercised about this. And the Court of Justice actually came on and said, no, when we say contemplating, we mean proposing. There must be a plan, there must be an actual plan uh, within the mind of the employer to make dismissals, dismissals within the, the wider uh, the definition of redundancies. So there needs to be a plan. So what an employer has to be cautious about is making firm plans and not consulting, making a firm plan and not bringing the union in, not bringing in appropriate representatives. It's, it's fine to have possible, potential, contingent options. That's not when you're actually proposing to dismiss somebody. Uh, you might be just looking at all sorts of different ways in which the business can be saved. But as soon as there is any sort of firm proposal, then that's the time when the obligation to consult in good time is triggered. Often, uh, some employers will use their legal departments, in-house legal or indeed an external lawyer, uh, to just discuss the early options under the cover of privilege, getting legal advice about uh, what might be before they start having an open conversation within the business 
uh, which will turn into a plan. But there's no doubt about it that the real area of dispute between employers and, and unions and employees over many years has been employers waiting too long, employers having a plan and not sharing it until they are ready, and then saying, oh, we only had a firm plan later on. And employers have got to be very careful about that. It, it's, it's not appropriate to, to game the system to have a plan, but keep it up your, up your sleeves and only reveal it to the unions and the employees' representatives at the time of your choosing. And what uh, Patrick Elias said when he was in charge of the EAT uh, back in oh, 10, 12 years ago in the UK coal mining case was that where a complete closure of a workplace is contemplated, then the consultation requirement may stretch right back into the economic decision making about the closure itself, because once an employer decides on economic grounds to close an office or a factory or a shop, then really on the basis of that one decision is the only decision of which any consultation can be taken. Once that's uh, looked at, once that's decided, then everything else is just window dressing. Now that we thought was going to be the big issue in USA and Nolan, which was going to be looked at by the European Court of Justice. But as happened, uh, Nolan was decided rather on procedural grounds, and so it really wasn't grappled with. But that is always the battleground. Uh, when do you have to start? And when is in good time? What, what if an employer, say, knows now that there'll be 10 redundancies or, or there may need to be 10 redundancies, but thinks it's likely that, that there might need to be more? So perhaps the employer has applied for one of the government-backed loans and, and doesn't yet know the outcome. So in other words, what are the implications of potentially a rolling pro program of redundancies? Well, if the employer has a proposal for a rolling program and knows that there's going to be X in the first wave of redundancies and Y in the, in the second wave of redundancies and Z in the third wave of redundancies, then it has a proposal for that number of redundancies at the outset. And therefore, uh, it needs to consult if X plus Y plus Z adds up to more than, than 20. And so if you pose a rolling program and you know the numbers, uh, at the outset, then of course, uh, you must add those together cumulatively in order to look at whether the obligation is triggered or not. But I think your question, if I might catch you, looks a bit more at a situation where an employer tries to hold the line. I and mean, we can see this happening as we come out of lockdown and as the recession bites harder and harder, an employer might start by saying, well, I'm just going to slim down a bit. I've managed to uh, save the business so far by using furlough and other uh, monies available to me, grants and so forth. Uh, then I'm going to do a, a small number of redundancies just to start with, and then we'll see how we go. And then realizes within a short period of time that the market is not coming back, things are getting no better, and then proposes more. Now, in those circumstances where there's a genuine initial proposal for a certain number, and then a later decision and a later proposal for a lesser number, then you don't add them together. And indeed, if you propose, I don't know, if you propose 20 redundancies, um, begin consultations and then decide that a further 10 are necessary later on, there's no duty to consult under the 1992 Act about those additional 10 because the original 20 are discounted. Uh, you've got to be careful about the other way around though, because if you pose 10 redundancies and there's no duty to consult, and then you subsequently add 
uh, some more, which takes it above the, the threshold, then there is a duty to consult about all of the redundancies that you have cumulatively because the original 10 in, the, in that example aren't discounted. So the cynic would say, well, hang on, uh, an employer can avoid all collective consultation obligations by, by dividing up their redundancies into small batches. Well, the tribunal is going to be very cautious about an employer that makes redundant 10 and then 10 later and then 10 later and 10 later and saying that none of those could be predicted. And disclosure, of course, will be key. The, the unions will be looking at the emails between managers to see what was being talked about and was it genuinely that only 10 was thought of on the first date and then the second 10 came completely out of the blue and the third 10 came completely out of the blue and so forth. And we've got to be careful about trying to be cynical because that will probably lead to an employer coming unstuck. But if an employer wants to try to be cautious and have a fewer number of redundancies at the outset, then of course that's in everybody's benefit. And uh, the obligation to consult collectively will only trigger when cumulatively you add up to the, the greater number and trigger the threshold. Another important issue is the, the scope of the consultation. So, so what does the consultation need to cover? I mean, what sort of information, for instance, does an employer need to give to employee representatives? Well, this is another area in which there's a bit of a disconnect between the directive and the 1992 Act, in that the directive is quite clear that the employer needs to consult over all relevant information, all relevant information. Whereas uh, section 188 uh, sets out minimum information uh, that needs to be given in writing and in good time. And normally that, that's the maximum of the information that the employer will give. It will give the information in a checklist of section 188 and sometimes no more. So the, the 188 checklist you probably know is things like the reasons for the proposed redundancies, the, the numbers of the likely dismissals and the descriptions of the employees involved. You need to inform the union or the employees' representatives of the total numbers of employees uh, who are employed at the establishment, the descriptions, and the methods you're going to use for selection, the methods of carrying out the redundancy process, and of course, calculating the uh, any non-statutory redundancy payments. So there's a few other bits and pieces involving agency workers as well. So that information is set out in a checklist in section 188 has to be in writing given at the outset of the consultation to the, uh, the union, the appropriate representatives, but, and this is quite a significant but, it might not be enough because the act is read in the light of the directive. The directive says that the employee needs to give all relevant information. And so if there is some important information that is not contained within the 188 list, that the employer has and doesn't give to the unions at that initial stage and doesn't consult over, then that could lead to a problem and could lead to it being said that the consultation was not uh, meaningful, was not full, was not effective. Under current circumstances, I'd, I'd have thought it's going to be particularly difficult for employers to, to be planning ahead. For instance, they, they might not have much data on which to base projected cash flows. Um, how do you think that's going to affect collective consultations and, and the kind of information that employers will be able to provide to the employees? Well, to a certain extent, 
once we're out of, of lockdown and we go in into potential uh, recession or potential business uh, downturns, the markets struggle to recover, we, we might see ourselves in a similar situation that some businesses were, were in after the banking crisis, going back before that, uh, previous economic downturns. And so uh, in some ways, the test hasn't changed that much. I suppose the severity of the downturn won't be known. And so the employer may not know the numbers of the likely dismissals and exactly who's going to be involved at that outset, at that out, out, um, outset of the consultation. Uh, they should start to consult over perhaps the first batch. We talked about batching a moment ago when we were discussing that. But as the crisis unfolds and the consequences of the crisis unfold, it may be that the numbers will change. Whereas there'll be a number of things which, of course, the employer will know about or ought to know about the number of employees at the establishment and the proposed methods of selection, uh, the amount of redundancy payments if it's non-statutory. Those sort of things ought not to change. They ought to be relatively predictable. Therefore, we are in a situation where possibly the fact that we're in a coronavirus uh, crisis and that a lot of employers are going to be in this situation isn't going to change all that much. The sorts of uh, information the employer will know or ought to know at the outset of the consultation if they are proposing to dismiss uh, employees in order to cope with the financial consequences of, of where we are at the moment. Now, you, you mentioned at the beginning that the requirement is to consult with appropriate representatives of the employees who may be affected. And presumably, sometimes those will be rep representatives from an independent trade union. But if there are no existing reps already in place, how do you think an employer could arrange for representatives to be elected when some or all employees that might be furloughed or working from home? So if we're in a situation where the employer realises that that furlough and the current situation is not sufficient to save the business and we they know it's early state that redundancy is going to be needed then i suppose we could have a situation where we've got no union we've got no employee forum or employees who are already appointed or elected to to receive information or consult about redundancies uh, and so we'll need an election and of course the election has to be one which satisfies the statutory requirements uh, set out in section 188a of the 1992 act and of course they're the requirements that you might expect the employer's got to make such arrangements as are reasonably practical in all the circumstances to ensure that the election is fair and i suppose there may be a relaxation of what arrangements are reasonably practicable if they're trying to collectively consult and hold elections and arrangements about consultation in COVID-19 circumstances as perhaps we are after the initial lockdown stage but we're still within a stage where most people are being invited to work from home rather than get on the tube and buses and uh, fail to socially distance. If we look at traditional, you've been involved in this catcher, traditional communication between union reps or employee reps and, and workers that takes place at work doesn't it? Well usually it would yes and I, I've been wondering about what kinds of steps an employer could take i mean in some circumstances i think you'd be concerned about what kinds of technologies people would have access to at home so you know you might immediately start thinking about some sort of online poll but some people will will have lots of access to technology at home but other people might not they might not have reliable internet connections 
they might only well, that's have true. I mean, a phone. The, um, uh, what's it called, Civica, what used to be the electoral reform services, when I mean, they have been pushing and, and providing services for secure online voting platforms for, for quite some time now. And so in some ways, there's no, no problem in running an online poll for appropriate representatives uh, you, you need to build a proper voting window in some ways with everybody still at home and nobody away uh, out of contact then of course you, you might actually be able to have even a shorter polling period but you're right the the problem that's facing there is that you would need to potentially have postal polling for those people who did not have proper access to the secure online voting platform on the internet and you can't start consulting until your employees are elected so You've got to be, and you've got to be careful about excluding from the ballot, disenfranchising people without the technology to get involved in the online poll. So the, the other thing is, of course, that communications with potential candidates for reps is going to be difficult. And it's important that the, the vote is taking place in secret, which can be done online, and, and important that the votes are accurately counted, and, and that can be done with the assistance of one of those polling services. But... I suppose the real problem would be in, well, first that, and, and secondly, well, how the appropriate representatives then do their job. Yes, I mean, there are, there are certain things that the employer is obliged to put in, in place, of course. So they've, they've got to make sure that the representatives can, can actually represent their fellow employees, that they've got access to them. But that's going to be more difficult when their fellow employees are also furloughed or, or working from home. The, the employer's duties are, well, to give access to uh, the workers. Now, I suppose that's permissive. Uh, you have to give, you have to allow the representatives access to your employees and you have to afford uh, such accommodation and other facilities as may be appropriate. An appropriate facility in these circumstances might be that the employer needs to provide uh, a platform or a way in which the workers can contact uh, the appropriate representatives, providing the contact details, maybe even setting up an email address uh, for the appropriate representatives, a telephone line for them so that people can get hold of them. I don't think it's appropriate for all of the employees' personal contact data to be given to the representatives. I think that would be potentially a data protection problem and, and would go beyond the access that's required as I said earlier, permissively in the legislation. But certainly the employer will need to think to a certain extent imaginatively in order to make sure that appropriate facilities are taking place which are appropriate to these circumstances. I think that an employer who doesn't show that they've gone above and beyond the norm if the situation that we're facing is not the norm might be in difficulties and might be said that uh, Section 1885A the obligation to afford appropriate facilities uh, might be breached if the employer doesn't uh, think imaginatively and take those sort of steps. There is, of course, a, a special circumstances defence which employers can sometimes rely on. Presumably, the, the COVID-19 pandemic could, in some circumstances, count as, as a special circumstance. But do, does that no, mean I employers... No, I think we've got to be very careful put? in falling back on special circumstances too readily there's no doubt about it that uh, we are in a, a very a difficult position we're in a, uh, a 
special circumstance in the wider use of that phrase, but it's a special circumstance which stops you, which, which makes it not reasonably practicable for the employer to comply with uh, section 188, uh, 18, the, the obligation to consult in good time. So if the virus situation meant that the employer could show that communication between management levels was slower, was held up, and therefore information didn't get to the right person so that it could be communicated uh, to the people who needed to make the proposals, who could then communicate to the union. That could be a special circumstance that gets in the way of starting the consultation in good time. Or if the, the content of the uh, subject and two, the content of the consultation with the union or the representatives, that's subject to the special circumstances. So possibly because of the situation, because of the difficulties in getting people together, some of the information that was supposed to be in the written uh, list of information given at the outset might be not, not available or might be uh, coming later, might be delayed. And so those are situations. Interestingly, of course, I, th I think uh, the accommodation we've just talked about, the other facilities as appropriate, that isn't subject to the special circumstances and defence. So you still need to consult and provide uh, facilities to the people who are consulting so that there can be a meaningful consultation, uh, even where you're in a difficult circumstance. So I think my overall thought would be, it's the last last chance, it's the, the last bastion of the defence to rely on the special circumstances. And even though we're in COVID-19 or coming out of COVID-19, that should not be the employer's first port of call. It should remain the last port of call. And employers should make steps to, to, and show in the paperwork that they made steps to comply with all of the requirements of section 188 and if they're going to rely on special circumstances they need to have documented that because a tribunal looking at this in 2022 or 2023 is going to look fairly cautiously and jealously at employers who avoided their section 188 obligations just by blithely referring to the, the crisis. So I think it's it sounds like it's it's fair to say Employers are still going to need to respect employees' rights in just in just the same to the same extent that they always do have to, but they're going to have to think a bit more carefully about the steps they take to do so. While while yeah, the circumstances the, are the book on how so to strange. do collective consultations is have to be partly rewritten, particularly if, as you mentioned earlier, the consultation is starting when uh, a period when life hasn't still got back to normal. So employers will need to think carefully about how to carry out an appropriate collective consultation. The same duties apply, although under current circumstances, it might all need to be done a little differently. Andrew, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to me today. If you'd like to get in touch with us in relation to anything we've covered in today's podcast, or if you have suggestions for future episodes, we can be contacted via email on events at devchambers.co.uk. And please do subscribe to this podcast to receive automatic updates.